Second Samuel, starting um, in chapter 7, verse 1 to 17. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of Seder, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, and I have been moving about in a tent from my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of Seder? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint you a place for my people Israel, and plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Um, and the second reading is in Isaiah, it's Isaiah chapter 11, starting at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from its, his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide the equity of the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a child 
and a child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat the straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious in that day the lord will extend his hand yet second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from assyria from egypt from pathron from cush from elam from shinar from hamath from the coastlands of the sea he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of israel and gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall, be not, shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim, but they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into the seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria from the remnant of the remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We desire, Lord, to hear your word this morning and to put it into practice. We know that your word is um, God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, training. Lord, we pray that you would open our ears this morning to hear what you have to say to us. Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, Chapel Street. Good morning, Chapel Street Online. And uh, I hope Sam's listening on the other end. <laughs> no excuses. Um, well, Christmas is a beautiful time of the year, uh, a time where most of us enjoy many good things. Um, we enjoy time with family. And with friends, as we've mentioned already, we enjoy uh, food, presents. Uh, we both give and receive presents. And for those of us who have children, we enjoy our, uh, watching our children enjoy those presents. But aside from that, most of us uh, understand that um, even if we don't have any of those things, or if some of those things are lacking, uh, that Christmas would be and is just as beautiful because of the reason for the season, as we've mentioned already. And the holiday literally is Christ Mass, the celebration of Christ, and particularly that of his birth, when God took on flesh to become man. But one of the issues that we have today is that if a person knows that Christmas is meant to be about Jesus, and that is increasingly less and less common, 
then it is quite unlikely that that person will be thinking about Christ in the right way. And if they're worshipping a Christ, they may not be worshipping him properly or even the right one. Across churches this Christmas, uh, you'll find services that betray Christ as this Jesus who is only ever warm and fuzzy. The warm and fuzzy Jesus is here to bring you blessings. Warm and fuzzy Jesus is here to make you feel happy and maybe even make you feel good about yourself. The warm and fuzzy Jesus has no claim on your life. So if you don't want him, that's perfectly fine. You'll hear very little about him being the king, about him coming to save and then coming to rule. But when we look at what the Bible really says about Jesus, particularly in our passage this morning, um, we see that, that rule and saving is at the heart of who Jesus is what his role is for us. In my preparation, I was reminded of that verse in Romans uh, where Paul, the Apostle Paul says, uh, behold the kindness and severity of God. And it's along that line that we'll be looking this morning where we're holding up both God's kindness, his grace to us, his mercy, his goodness, and at the same time, his severity which is at the heart of who he is as well. And that brings us to our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, we'll be looking at three aspects of who Jesus is. Firstly, his purpose. What did he come to do? Secondly, his justice. And thirdly, his holiness. Uh, we'll look at those in a moment. But before we do that, since we haven't been studying Isaiah together with the take a brief moment to look at the context of the passage. Last week um, in the book of Ruth, uh, Dave took us through um, that passage in at the end of Ruth and showed us that in troubled times, um, we need to put our hope in the promises of God. We saw that God's greatest promise is the promised king, Christ, the Messiah, who is going to usher in a perfect kingdom that will stretch across the whole world. But we also saw that it's not always clear exactly how God is going to fulfill these promises. We imagine the people in, in Bethlehem, a small town, and uh, imagined how they'd be huddling around asking themselves, wondering, how is God going to do this? And uh, our text this morning uh, finds us in a similar scene uh, about 500 years later, after Boaz's time, and uh, 300 years since the first king as well. This generation and after generation has passed, the question still remains, how is God going to keep his promise? And so uh, turn with me to verse 1 of chapter 11. Uh, we read the prophet Isaiah, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So the first thing you'll notice is the name Jesse. 
who is Jesse. Uh, Jesse is the father of David, the first king of Israel. And so his line, which is being betrayed here, represents uh, the line of kings that have been ruling over the southern kingdom of Israel for Judah. And we expect, because this line has in it David and Solomon, which are probably names that you're familiar with, we expect this line to be depicted as something strong, stable, like a tree that's firmly established. After all, in our passage in 2 Samuel, God gave a promise that the throne of their kingdom would be established forever. And we're only 10 kings in, so we should be doing pretty well. But what we actually find is that the line is depicted as a stump. Something's happened since God gave that promise. The tree has been down. Somehow, we've gone from the mighty warrior king David and the prosperous, wise King Solomon to this stone. And you might be thinking, how? Why? Why would God do that? Why would he cut down this tree? And the answer is fairly simple. It's sin. Sin of the people of Israel. After Solomon's death, the kingdom was fractured between the north and the southern kingdoms. And almost every descendant, not quite all of them, but most of the descendants after Solomon chose to go their own way and worship idols and reject their God. So they break covenant with him, and so God rightly judges his people. He prophesies that Babylon is going to come and send the kingdom of Judah into exile. Uh, we see an example of this uh, to look for context in chapter 9, verse 8, through to chapter 10, verse 4. Uh, this is a, a prophecy against um, the northern kingdom, Israel, and how Assyria will come and take them away. Um, but it's along the same line as what will later happen uh, against Judah. And so... Right from the start of our passage in verse one, we're introduced not to a um, an example of human triumph or success, but what we actually see is human failure and brokenness as a result of the sin. But rather than leading us to despair, God in his mercy has given a ray of hope. Most of you will know that when a tree is felled, depending on the type of the tree, there will be a shoot that comes up from that tree. And uh, in his mercy, the picture that we see here is that uh, from the stump of Jesse comes forth a shoot or a branch, meaning that God would raise up a new king in the line of Jesse, as king is Jesus. And what do we learn about this branch, this Jesus? Well, firstly, that he bears fruit at the end of verse 1. Bearing fruit is a very important uh, theme or image in the Bible. It's a picture of spiritual health or maturity or growth. Um, 
And not only that, but also um, it's reflective of uh, a life or, uh, or of something that fulfills the purpose for which it was made. So when you think of an apple tree, an apple tree is fruitful when it bears apples. That's the purpose that it was made for. If I plant it and it doesn't do that, it's not fruitful. And so what we see is Jesus, this branch is fruitful. And that's quite a stark contrast to what we see um, in the stump. All the other branches uh, that came from that tree are now dead. But this branch is very much alive. The stump has been cut down and lost all its fruit, but this branch retains its fruit and its fruit. And in this, we see just how different Jesus is uh, from all other kings and all other people. As people born from Adam, each one of us and each of the old kings were sinful, were broken and destined to fail. But this man was perfect. It was God. So he had no sin. And as Nathan prophesied, he would live forever. His kingdom would endure forever. So that's the context that we come to and looking at verse 1. We're hoping for a promised king, and Jesse's line, who was supposed to be established forever, has been cut down because of uh, the nation's sin. But by the mercy of God, we have a new fruitful shoot, and that person is Jesus. Now, what sort of things do we learn about Jesus as we read on? Well, as we mentioned before, first is to do with his purpose. Jesus came with a purpose. Look at verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge, and his delight shall be in the fear of Now notice what's happening here. We have this stump, and the shoot or branch is coming out of that stump. Um, but rather than, uh, I don't know, it seems a strange way, to me at least, to, to go on to the the next verse, I would expect the verse to be about something different, but instead Isaiah starts talking about the spirit. Why is that? Well, the spirit is being given to equip Jesus for the task that he is being assigned. The word anointed here is particularly relevant, the word anointed, and we see that in Isaiah chapter 61, which is later on in this book of the Bible. Starting from verse 1, it's almost a uh, um, parallel passage. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. So this is from the perspective of Christ. Because the Lord has anointed to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the, of the prison to those who are bound. <clears throat> so in ancient Israel, the picture of anointing was a symbol which indicated that God was 
commissioning someone into a particular office, usually an office that was a prophet, priest, or a king. Those are the primary ones that we see in the Old Testament. And it was a picture that said um, that this person has been set apart for service to God. And so if you saw someone being anointed, you knew that their life would now be centered around this service, this office. It endowed them with a very specific purpose. And uh, even in Isaiah 61, after we see the word anointed, we see then immediately um, Isaiah explains what he will do. He's anointed and then he proclaims uh, good news to the poor. He uh, binds up the brokenhearted. He proclaims liberty. He opens the prison. So we have the anointing and then the action that proceeds from that anointing. And this is the same in chapter 11. But which office is Jesus being appointed to? Is he a prophet? Is he a priest or a king? But what I think we see in verse 2 is actually not just one or even two offices, but all three. Jesus is a prophet, priest, and king. Firstly, a prophet, because he is given, see verse 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. This refers to the wisdom and understanding that you would expect of a prophet or a teacher of the law uh, during that day. Simply, it's someone who knows the will of God and who can accurately relay the words of God. And when we look at the life of Jesus, this certainly rings true. We know that when he preached, the word says that he spoke with authority as no one had ever seen before. His sermons both confounded the Pharisees and captured the attention of the masses. Thousands of people flocked to hear him preach, and he taught us the true meaning of just about everything in the Bible, about the law, the nature of the kingdom of heaven, about sin. We see him quoting scripture effortlessly against the devil, against the Pharisees, to his disciples, and to the common people. And all of this because he had the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So he's Israel's prophet. Secondly, Jesus is king. He's king because he has the spirit of counsel and might. Now, counsel sounds like a knowledge-related word, but really these are both military terms. Counsel being the ability to draw up a strategy, a military strategy, and then might to accompany that, the ability to, to put that strategy into practice. So what we, what we have here is a man who, in a time of war, is able to win every battle. And both of these, um, just like the first two, are absolutely essential. Because even if Jesus was a great teacher, even if he could bring us words from God, for him to be a savior, which is primarily his role, we need him to be able to conquer our enemies, our enemies of sin, 
and death and Satan. Simply put, Jesus would be a worthless leader if he could not take dominion and subdue his enemies. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is Jesus as king. We often forget that when Jesus is living on earth, he is a king and he's taking dominion and he's fighting a battle. But then finally, not just a prophet and a king, but also a priest. We see that in the last line of chapter two, sorry, verse two, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the ESV, um, it reads knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Um, but really based on commentaries and, and hearing other people, I think it's right for knowledge and fear and fear, both to be related to of the Lord. So what we are reading is fear of the Lord and knowledge of the Lord. And, and these are both uh, things to do with worship to know God and to fear God, which is the primary role of a priest. The priest in the Old Testament is someone who would make a sacrifice to God on behalf of the people and then stand before God and advocate for his people. And we have countless reminders in the scriptures of Jesus advocating for his people. But what's incredible about Jesus and what separates him particularly from the priests of that day is this knowledge of God and fear of God. This is someone who has deep intimacy with God. He talks with God. He knows God. He loves God. And not only that, but God knows him. God talks to him and God loves him. This is the knowledge of God. And then also the fear of God. What is that? That um, seems a strange thing to, to describe uh, someone who we know to be God. But simply the fear of the Lord is seeing the fullness of the greatness of God of his um, power, his magnitude, coupled also with his um, moral purity and his kindness and goodness and, and seeing those things and shuddering and reverently fearing. Um, I heard a sermon from John Snyder explaining the fear of God he puts it beautifully about how it played out in Christ's life. He said, for Christ, the greatest pleasure in life would not be comfort or in getting what he wants, but it will be in the fear of the Lord. And so every task that seems mundane, like walking from one dusty town to the next dusty town, every task that is difficult, like teaching people that walk away from you or embracing the cross, every secret thing that he did that no one knows about but the Father, 
It is a pleasing thing to Jesus of Nazareth because in it, he is able to express to the Father this holy fear that I stand in awe of the work of my Father. So this was Jesus as priest. So we have Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And those three things point to how he would be the ultimate redeemer of Israel. He came as the priest to make atonement and sacrifice for his people's sins. He came to be the prophet to tell his people about the way of salvation, how to repent, how to live, how to find forgiveness. And then the king, he came to ransom his people, to win them back and to rule over them. And part of the point is this, that Jesus lived a life full of purpose. And this is such a contrary thing to, to the way that most people will view Jesus this Christmas. There was no sitting idly in the life of Christ. He was always about his father's business. And it reminded me of that passage in the book of Mark um, that describes Jesus' baptism, which is where this anointing in verse 2 takes place. And it says that, you know, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends, Jesus is at that point anointed. And then what happens? Well, Jesus doesn't go home and watch television. He doesn't sit down and take a break. This, the word says the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And at that point, there was there began a, a three-year ministry that was purposeful, determined, resolute. Jesus was serious about the things of God. And so, are you thinking about Jesus that way this morning, this Christmas? In the midst of all the, the Christmas lights, and food and advertisement. How often do we, when looking at that nativity scene, bring in all the thoughts of Jesus' life and purpose and mission, and his determination to save his people and redeem them for himself? So that's Jesus' purpose, our Savior. Uh, but next, we see also his justice. His justice. Look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Uh, we see a lot of references, I noticed, in uh, that to, to judging. I thought that might be confusing. Um, but this isn't kind of a condemning, um, harsh judging. Uh, the emphasis here is simply on um, making things right. This is a world uh, where, um, oh, sorry, no. To understand what's going on here, I think we need to understand the world in which Isaiah is living, the context in which he's speaking to, because this is a world where 
people who are lowly and meek have no voice. They are instead oppressed and afflicted. They are not given justice. And it's not hard to imagine then how these people would have craved the genuine justice that Christ is going to offer, that he loves to exercise. Now it says in uh, verse 3, he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. And the point here is that Jesus' judgments will be perfect. Not that he will not use his eyes and his ears. It would seem strange to us because for us to make right judgments, we need to be able to see. We need to be able to hear what happens. We're familiar um, in our own day with with court cases and um, yeah, similar events where the evidence doesn't lead to a right conviction when the judge makes a mistake. Someone isn't given justice. That's because people base their decisions on appearances. And the point is that Jesus does not judge based on appearances, what his eyes see, what his ears hear. But he's the one who knows our hearts and minds. He will never make a wrong decision. When he's on the throne, every decision he makes would be right and true. Then we read in verse 4, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. We see this in the Gospels, don't we? That Jesus always seems to be hanging around the meek, and the poor and the lowly is something that we see in Isaiah 61 as well, the passage that we read before. I pull, pull it back again. After he's anointed, he brings good news to the poor. He's sent to the brokenhearted, to the captives, to those who are in prison. He cares for these people, especially those who are broken in spirit or poor. And he mentions that in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then in verse 5, we read, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In this context, clothing is indicative of um, the, the commitments that someone is, um, or the things that someone is committed to, the, the things that they're uh, affiliated with or that they desire. So um, in this case, we see that Jesus is committed to righteousness, to being righteous. We see a commitment to faithfulness and an assurance that Jesus will show no partiality. And the result of this is in verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. 
and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall leave them. And on it goes, verse nine, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. There is again, Jesus is the priest who has the knowledge of the Lord. But one day, he'll usher in a kingdom where everyone knows the Lord. And the result is this, this perfect place. It's, it's the language of the Garden of Eden. When God created the world, everything was perfect. There, there was no death. There was no sin. This is a place of perfect peace. Uh, Jesus will establish heaven, take away all sin, and establish the eternal kingdom that we saw promised in the second Samuel. The Puritan, <clears throat> excuse me, Samuel Rutherford describes heaven like this. God has made many fair flowers, but the fairest is heaven. And the flower of all flowers is Christ. One year's time in heaven shall swallow up all your sorrows beyond all comparison. So in this life that we're sojourning in, at this time at Christmas, remember that Jesus is in that manger, going to grow up to be the man who would execute perfect justice and would not only be just in himself and in his own life, but would one day reconcile all things such that we have a place being prepared that there would be perfect justice where there will be perfect righteousness but this begs the question and we'll move on to our last point now how is jesus going to do that if uh, Jesus really is going to exercise justice, if there's really going to be this place called heaven that's like the Garden of Eden but better, and if there's really going to be no sin, all we have to do is look around us and see that that's apparently not the case. So we see then that Jesus is holy. Read this in verse 4. Halfway through this and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. A straightforward answer to how Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of heaven is that he will have to get rid of all the bad stuff, all the sin, sin in us. To have a place like heaven, both the world and the people in it have to be good. If I have a house that has a foundation that's completely broken, that's been destroyed by termites or something like that, the solution for me to fix the house is not to build that, or it's not to fix the outside of the walls. The result is probably just to start again, build a better house. And that's what Jesus is coming to do. He's coming in judgment 
to rid the earth of sin and all those who are, as the text says, wicked. This is a helpful reminder that the God that we serve, as we've already said, is not just a baby in the manger. He's also the Lord God Almighty. He's the one who inhabits both the heavens and the earth. And one day, he's the one who will strike the earth. He will one day fight and conquer. He will come with vengeance. Like David, Jesus has his mighty men. And if he doesn't come and judge, there will be no. We have no hope of eternal life. If God doesn't rid the world of sin and all those who cling to it. This is not very palatable stuff. It's not something that you would put on a, an evening TV commercial, but it is true. And it's important that we realize that even at Christmas, as we look at the baby in the manger, it's the man who would one, one day grow up, raised from the dead, and then judge the nations in righteousness. If I can put it this way, he's nothing like Santa Claus. Probably see more of Santa this Christmas than you will of Jesus. Because Santa is the man who's always bringing presents, like the fuzzy Jesus kind of. They want the one who makes people feel good. But no one will ever have to bow to Santa Claus. But they will have to bow to Jesus. And some of us might doubt this and, and say, I think that Jesus is the sort of person who would do that. Jesus is good and gentle and nice. And after all, we see lots of nice things that he, that he does in the Gospels. But Jesus is God. He's clearly divinity. And God's already demonstrated that he is holy and just in the judgment of his own people. When his people sinned and went astray, as we said before, God judged them. He's holy and righteous, and that's a demonstration. And God is willing to do that to his own people. With the whole world watching at the stake of his glory, how much more will he be willing to judge those who are not willing to be called as who do not desire to be one of the sun. Last reading I'll take us to is Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 and through 16. John writes, Then I saw heaven open. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Sounds like the king. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows for himself. 
He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And remember in verse 4, Jesus strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth. It's his word that conquers the wicked. And the armies of heaven back in Revelation, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name and the king of kings and lords. Is this the Jesus that you worship at Christmas? Is this the Jesus that you tell people about? Does the baby in the manger remind you of this God, this God who is who is coming? This God who is preparing a place, a beautiful place of heaven that will wipe away every tear, that will make amends for all your hardship and pain. And yet, who is coming in judgment? Who will be dressed in a robe covered in blood? And so to finish, I think it's appropriate to read verses 10 through 12 of chapter 11. We read, in that day, the root of Jesse, so no longer the branch, but now the root of Jesse, because Christ is eternal, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shina, from Hama, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal to the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. We've seen that Christ needs to judge the world before he inaugurates his final and perfect kingdom. But the beauty of this promised king is that he doesn't rush to come in that judgment. That he's patient. That he gives time for those who do not know him to get right. He's, he's done it for most of us who did not know God and yet he chose us and gave us faith to know him. He's patient. If he did it today, many people would perish. But every day that he allows more and more people to come to know him, so that they might know salvation. And the criteria for this salvation is not good works or personal piety or doing religious things. The criteria is repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Believing in him, trusting in his work on the cross and obeying him. 
living life and striving to obey Christ, the baby had a purpose to save us from our sins, to be the perfect prophet, the priest, and the king, to exercise justice. He will bring forth perfect justice and he will cleanse the world in his holiness. But he also grew up to be a sacrifice. He wasn't just a priest, he was also the sacrifice. He took upon, us, put upon himself the sin and the judgment that we deserve. And he's imputed to us by faith his righteousness, that we might be pure and blameless. In his grace, he ransoms us to be the pe his people. And now the banner is raised. The signal is up there for all the nations to see. And all his people will come to him. Will make their way to him. And there's that beautiful picture at the end there in verse 16. And there will be a highway from Syria for the remnant that remains of Israel, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. God has made it impossible to come to any obstacle that might have stood in our way. He has completely destroyed the sea of Egypt, Jordan. He breaks down and lets his people walk across its sands. So we should praise our God. Praise him that he is so kind, even as he is so severe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to a people like us, so wicked, so worthy of judgment. And yet, Lord, by faith, you have given us a hope that one day we will be in heaven with you, that perfect place where all will be made well. Lord, this Christmas, would you help us to look afresh at the manger of Christ? Thank you so much, Lord, that he is a king of peace, a king who loves justice, who loves the meek, who will bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that your side is the king. And pray, Lord, that as we leave this morning, you would help us to kiss the sun us to be angry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.